This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 102 is Jungian analyst and author Dr. Nancy Qualls Corbett in Birmingham, Alabama. Born in 1932, she began her career in nursing and went on to study psychology at the University of North Alabama, where she earned a master's degree in counseling. She then trained as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich, earning a diploma in analytical psychology, which is the degree of a Jungian analyst, in 1981. She went on to continue her education, later receiving a doctorate in analytical psychology from the Union Graduate University. Having a pension for acting since high school, she played Judge Hester Solomon in the Alabama Tri-Cities Little Theater production of Equus by Peter Schaffer. And in 2012, she participated in a reading of Elizabeth Clarkstern's play Out of the Shadows, a story of Tony Wolfe and Emma Young for the Young Society of Atlanta. Dr. Qualls Corbett served for many years on the faculty of the New Orleans Jungian Seminar and held several positions with the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts, having sat on their executive, review, admissions, and ethics committees. She is the author of two titles from Inner City Books, The Sacred Prostitute, Eternal Aspect of the Feminine, published in 1988, and Awakening Woman, Dreams and Individuation, published in 2002. An interview with Dr. Qualls Corbett appears in Volume 2 of Living with Jung by Robert and Janice Henderson, and her essay, Redeeming the Feminine, Eros and the World's Soul, was published by Fisher King Press in the book The Dream and Its Amplification, edited by Jungian analysts Ariel Shalit and Nancy Swift Ferlotti. Dr. Qualls Corbett has lectured throughout the United States and, combining her love of mythology and travel, has led seminar groups in Greece, Egypt, Italy, and France. She is a noted lecturer on Mary Magdalene, Dionysus, and the Villa of Mysteries. In 2021, she presented a four-part series on Mary Magdalene for the Friends of Young South. Her lectures included Mary Magdalene and the Da Vinci Code, Despairing Love, Why We Need a Penitent Whore, and Our Psychological Symbols from Science and Theology. Please visit the website speakingofyoung.com for more information on everything discussed in this episode. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, January 26, 2022, through the magic of Skype. Dr. Qualls Corbett, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Laura, this is a pleasure, truly. Thank you. You trained as a Jungian analyst at the Jung Institute in Zurich back in the late 70s and early 80s. What do you remember about that time? Well, uh, certainly it was a time of awakening for me. The uh, first time that I had lived out of the deep south. Uh, in Alabama, and um, learning a whole new culture, and certainly being introduced into deeper Jungian thought. It was truly a special, special time. And what drew you to Jung and 
and to make that journey, I mean, uh, across the Atlantic and to move to that foreign land uh, to train. That was a really strange happening. Uh, my husband and I, uh, who was a, a pediatrician there in Sheffield, Alabama, and I joined a group of uh, uh, study of Jung. It was from out of Center Point, which was uh, connected to the Episcopal Church. And uh, we studied, uh, we had both, you know, had been, he and his medical practice and so forth. Uh, and I, with psychology, had both been introduced to Jung, but deep theories we, we didn't know very much about. Mm-hmm. So Center Point allowed us uh, teaching us those, you know, introductory kind of thoughts. And we were intrigued. And then the group decided uh, they would like to be analyzed. We had no analysts in Birmingham or in Alabama at that time. And so um, we, Murray Stein was in Texas then, Houston, Texas then. He had just finished his diploma in Zurich, and he agreed to come over and be our analyst once a month. So we began our analysis again. That deepened our understanding. And then a really strange thing, how we got to Zurich, was that, uh, <laughs> and I remember it well, we we had five children, and they were very close in age. So, And this was around the time that they would all be leaving for for Zurich, I mean, for college. Mm-hmm. And at that time, um, and I was a stay-at-home mom and cooking meals and so forth. One night, all the all the children were out, um, so I was just cooking for my husband and myself, and <laughs> realized I didn't have a span a pan small enough to cook for two people, and I was laughing about it, and told him then at, at dinner time I said. <laughs> This is what happened. I said, we've got to be planning the rest of our lives mm. here. Uh, what would you, what would you like to do? And he immediately said, move to Zurich, meaning to continue with the, uh, the young in training. Mm-hmm. And I was astounded and delighted, too, and it was truly a change of life, uh, giving up his medical practice and our leaving home and our, as we had known it and our big family and so forth. So it truly was a new beginning, a starting again for both of us. Mm-hmm. And we both went through the program together. Did you? And then you, yeah, re- you so. returned to Alabama and you both started practicing as analysts. Yeah, <laughs> we went uh, uh, when we finished, and we did come back. We uh, wanted to be close to our children. They were still in the south, and um, you know, so to to practice here in Birmingham. 
While you were in Zurich, is that when you met Marion Woodman? I mentioned her because she wrote the foreword to your first book, The Sacred Prostitute, which we're going to be discussing here today. How did you meet Marion Woodman? Yeah, she was a student. Uh, she she was, um, I think, a third year student uh, finishing up when I arrived, but I didn't know her and meet her and. And then certainly was uh, afterwards that we, when she, she, she was in Canada and when she, we both finished and moved back and started practicing and she was been writing quite a bit. I was uh, familiar with her writings and I loved what she had to say. And uh, so we asked her if she would do the opening, the introduction. And she very kindly obliged. The opening to your book, The Sacred Prostitute, which was published by Daryl Sharp, who was also in Zurich at the time. When did you meet Daryl? Well, I met him in, in Zurich also. He was a student there. Uh, again, he was, uh, I think he was a year, a year older, a student. And he... Um, I don't know. Just uh, it's it's a very very close community, so mm-hmm. and dear friends. So that's how that's how we met. So let's get into the book. I I I said it's a classic in the field in the in the Jungian field. When I had started to promote this episode with you. I got a lot of comments from people who were very excited to hear you on this podcast talk about the book. And I've had the book for quite some time and I wasn't able to track you down. And it was through Melissa Werner, who was my guest in episode 97, who you know, uh, that's how (laughs) you and I mm -hmm, got in touch. So the Sacred Prostitute, uh, Marion Woodman, as I said, wrote the foreword, and she opens the book with the question, what is it in me that's drawn to this material? So I would like to ask you, why do you think this book gets such a huge reaction in a positive reaction and I mean, maybe other reactions, I just haven't seen them from people? What is it in us that is drawn to the concept of the sacred prostitute? Well, um, first of all, I would say the unknown. Um, I mean, yes, there's a kind of a, a sexy quality and quality there perhaps, but it's, uh, it's really a dichotomy uh, in our world, in our thinking. And so that was, um, that, that's what I think it, it, it's really, what, what's this about? You yeah. know, how can, how can the sacred and sexual come together? Uh, and that's been everybody's question many, many, many years, eons. You know, so she's the image. 
to me that carries both the erotic and the spiritual, the physical and our spiritual life, you see. Both come together, are united in her. And that's what makes her so rare. So rare. And in the foreword, Marion Woodman mentions that we are unconscious of the divinity that is inherent in matter. So would you talk a little bit about that split between spirit and matter? Yes, yeah, and it's very much, very much more today that I think we do not understand really the life-giving force of our nature, our matter around us, which is, it's spiritual in that sense, the life-givingness of it. And we negate that, as, just as we negate other duties that we have here. So that's and and kind of the loss of love of nature, true love. So I think that's what Marion was talking about, and certainly what. I see it's very much a part of what the sacred prostitute represents, too. And you say it's about the archetype of the divine feminine. So would yeah. you would you tell us you know what that is? Okay. Well, certainly in uh, in mythologies, I mean, going way back beyond even the Greek mythology and the Roman mythology that we're more uh, used to. Um, they were goddesses. They were divine. I mean, they were gods and goddesses. Both, both were divine. The feminine also had a place of divinity in people's hearts. Mm-hmm. She wasn't shut out. She was upheld. And, you know, in most of those beginnings were the goddess of earth, which were, you know, had to do with fertility. It had to do with procreation. It had to do with the lay of the land and where food came from. Uh, and that was worshipped. And she was seen certainly as sacred. So, uh, I mean, goddesses like Ishtar and Ashtarte and, uh, you know, way back Syrian motifs that, uh, so, and then, but we didn't have it. Growing up, Mm -hmm. when I was a, a, a real child, my... My bedtime stories were Greek myths. They weren't fairy tales. Mm-hmm. And so I I had a real, you know, a real kind of attachment to these stories as my dad would tell them to me at bedtime. But then uh, 
also growing up in said, a small Alabama town uh, in the Southern Baptist Church. There were no goddesses. Yeah. There was no, and I, I think that was an yearning of mine since early, early beginning. Where are our goddesses? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, after adulthood and reading more about um, that, uh, in seeing, yes, the, there were and in the temples and where the uh, sex was procreated after, after the prayer to the goddess. And then, so that, you know, that was such a true spiritual ritual, which incorporated the sexual act, but it was also very much a spiritual ritual. And the people of the time, you know, way back, BCE, Mm-hmm. were uh, to tell their life together, if it would be, and have very much a part of that. So um, I wondered where that went, that worship of the goddess went, and why it had to go, mm-hmm. and those things. So all in all, it just, you know, I must have lived with this for for a long, long time. Yeah. The wonder the wondering, the questioning, the what's this what's happening here to us. So that's that's kinda how she grew up, I think. You say we've lost our connection to the genuine feminine. So we have the light side of the feminine. I, for one, I grew up uh, as a Roman Catholic. And in my bedroom as a child, I had a statue of the Virgin Mary. And I always remember thinking, okay, so she's a mother, but she's a virgin. And (laughs) right, so so why? And and then I thought, okay, well, that's, that's real. And then I thought, well, how come there haven't been any other mothers who were virgins? Why just her? And so I started wondering, what, what's really going on here? And how is this affecting my image of women and of myself? And so that's, that's the big question. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you say your purpose is to bring to conscious awareness aspects of feminine nature which have been misunderstood, devalued, or lost to the unconscious. And I think that's a really important point. So we're looking at this from a Jungian perspective. So what is going on as far as how this is in the unconscious now? And so it's spilling out. Uh, yes, hopefully it is that uh, we are becoming more more conscious of the of the feminine principle within us, and but you you refer to early as the 
define feminine archetype. Yeah. You see, now this is part of it. And where is it that we elevate this, these feminine attributes that we have? Not just sexual, but where can we elevate the whole sense of the spiritual aspect of the feminine, Mm -hmm. which belongs to love. It belongs to wisdom. It belongs to joy. Uh, You know, really the, the crucial things that our life would be made of. So the divine feminine as the Virgin Mary, there's something you say conspicuously lacking. And why, I, I know why is, is not a great question, but it's my favorite question. Why or how did that happen in our Western Christian religions where uh, the feminine is pure only? And she doesn't have sex. And so I'm bringing this up because I think it's really affected our culture here in the United States, that there's this split. And I remember when I was taking a women's studies class in college at the University of Washington. And I remember on a test, it asked us to explain the whore Madonna split. And I remember getting that question wrong. That's how foreign that was to me, that I didn't understand what was going on there. So would you talk a little bit about that? About the whore Madonna split? Yes. Did you, okay. Uh, well, here again, it has to do with our the feminine sexuality. You know, if you are a virgin, you are pure. If you've had sex or meaningless sex, not for pro- procreation, that um, you are, meaning you are demeaned and debased. So, I mean, so what it is doing is negating a woman's sexual sexuality. It is negating completely the feeling of what lovemaking, and I don't mean having sex. I would really, really separate those two terms, okay. having sex and making love. Uh, they're different. So it it's just, they see her as just having sex. There's no sense of the loving touch, the loving kindness, the loving feelings, instinctual feelings that can be transmitted through lovemaking. So it is, what it does, I think, well, we can look at it another word. A uh, virgin, as we normally think of the word, means asexual. But if we look at the word virgin in another way, meaning pure, or in this case, 
which I love Esther Harding's phrase, one in herself, meaning that she's not contaminated. That's another word of seeing the word virgin. But I don't think the patriarchy, when they put that on, on the bandana, meant <laughs> it just meant that she didn't, she, she, you know, that she didn't have sex. Mm-hmm. So why do you think that happened? That That's what I'm curious about. Why did they split the feminine into kind of two categories, the virgin and the whore? Why not the the whole feminine, the complete, the genuine feminine? Well, because the, the patriarchy couldn't stand it at that time. I think why they negated sex life almost throughout all of our teachings. Uh, were they so pure? No, I don't think were. They were simple people, but they were having, making, and this is when the patriarchy was really, really coming strong. I mean, with the Roman Empire moving in and all of that, that uh, they negated that aspect. They're frightened of it, I think. Men fear, you know, in sex they lose, lose their strength, lose their willpower. So they, so it, there's a fear of sex also, I think. Yeah. I mean, where it's exciting and it's absolutely, you know, exhilarating. But there's also a fear behind it that I will I'll be taken in back. You ask these questions in the book, in the beginning of the book, The Sacred Prostitute. You say, why is woman's sexuality so exploited, so debased, when once it was revered, how can men come to know and to value the deeper meaning of femininity? And why is sexuality cut off from spirituality as if they were opposites? So women's sexuality went kind of underground and they there were these prostitutes. And my question is, why was there such a need for prostitutes back then? Well, uh, <laughs> like there is still today. Yeah, <laughs> I was thinking that too. Right. Yeah, but, uh, no, it, 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 it's truly a physical need. And then that has to be expressed. The thing about it is, it's, love is not expressed in it. It's just meeting the physical need. With women, if we were more complete and whole, then we would express all of that, and there wouldn't be this split-off uh, kind of group of women who are performing prostitution, and men too, I would assume, 
if we were whole, we would be all things. And so women's sexuality in our culture is exploited and it used to be revered. So I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about that, of how it's so exploited today. Oh, well, in many ways, first of all, yes, I think women are very much equally to blame. It's just not mm-hmm. the masculine being mm-hmm. the attributes of feminine and women also. They want power. They want control. They want money. They want those things too. And so they entice the man sexually and in that sense have power over him. And I think, uh, so they contribute also to this sense of debasement. The uh, women who have sex, not for lovemaking, but for eco demands. That reminds me of that often repeated quote of Jung's about power and love. Jung said, where love rules, there is no will to power. And where power predominates, there love is lacking. The one is the shadow of the other. I think it was just as we were talking about where there's eros, meaning love, deep love. Uh, Power negates that situation. If I want power, that's an ego thing. But if I want love, that's an, uh, you know, that's wanting or fulfilling my whole body. It's fulfilling my psychic life. It's fulfilling uh, emotions all over the place. So, yes, they are completely different. Love and power. Let's bring in Jung's concept of the anima and the animus and how this relates to the sacred prostitute. Jung's theory of anima and animus as being the counter-sexual side in each individual. So if I'm a woman on the outside, I also have a masculine aspect in my psyche. the, The feminine archetypes are there too, but the masculine, and that's called the animus in a woman the masculine side. And the animus is a Latin word meaning spirit. And then there is in the male, the countersexual part is called anima. And in Latin, that means soul. So it's talking about a woman's spirit and it's talking about a man's soul. 
Now, through our growing up and experience in life and all of that, these arch- these archetypes change shapes or seem to grow too. So there, as Jung has described them in four stages. First, for the anima, the first stage is the masculine. Now, oh, let me precede this by saying, now, this is the image of her own, of a woman's own animus or male side, which is then projected, projected onto a literal man and how she is attracted to what kind of man depends on her own projection of what stage her animus is in. And this would be the same for a man and an animal, too. That there are stages. There are stages, yes. The first stage for a woman, animus, is he is a hunk. You know, he's just a big, strapping, good-looking man. Uh, close to the earth, um, that kind of feeling. The second stage would be the more uh, Romeo type. Uh, He would be, you know, very sensitive. He would be open to love. He might not be there quite yet. But uh, he's more, you know, he's more there for her. Mm -hmm. The third stage of animus then comes as we see it projected. It's, uh, you know, something more more individuated, more likely to be seen. Uh, He would be something of a professor or a poet or uh, someone that, or a priest, maybe somebody that's experienced in more than just ego. And the last stage is uh, like a shaman. He's mystical and magical and really spiritual. So uh, he's almost unembodied. So those are the stages uh, that a woman goes through in seeing her projections onto another and the the gift of animus where he brings in certainly creativity, brings in the beautiful sense of one's spiritual nature, the sense of depth, the sense of psyche. So it's it's weaving the two together in seeing, kind of exploring 
what's on the outside of what do I see at the outside, but also exploring the inner life of my own masculine life. What's the, what is my animus, certainly at the stage that he is now, you know, what is he telling me? What is he instructing? How does he excite me? How does it, you know, come to being? And to, that really, really creative aspect of a woman's life. And that's for the, any, any questions on the woman or shall we go to the man? Yeah, and the anima. Yeah, let's go to the anima. And uh, you actually outline this in the book on page 102. So what are the stages of the anima? Well, again, we're talking about the projections that a man sees on the outer woman. In the first, she <laughs> she's like we've been talking about. She's, she's a whore. I mean, she's just sex. That's what I'm. That's what a woman, I mean, that's what he looks at a woman Yeah. about what kind of sex she give me or something of that sort, you see. She's just pure sex. I think Young refers to her as Eve. Um, and then the next stage would be um, one of uh, beauty. And I think Ian calls her Helen. Um, it's Helen of Troy, beauty mm-hmm. and refinement and more of that thing that he said she brings in love and beauty, but there's something very tender there also. So we see that. And then the next stage would be, as he refers to, as Mary, the mother. Um, It's more spiritual feelings. Uh, Something greater than. But yet with a loving, very, very loving, tender, caring, aspect, that kind of love, you see. And then in the fourth stage is Sophia, what he he terms as Sophia, or wisdom. Uh, Like Sophia, who, you know, in the Bible, he was the bride of God. So, I mean, she's, she's absolutely full of wisdom, of Earth's wisdom, of universe wisdom. Not knowledge, perhaps, or learning, or left brain stuff. This is right brain. What is the feeling of the universe? What is the feeling of the God's wife's love, you see? That how do how do I how do I incorporate that into my own being, my own sense of my spiritual life? So that's to me is how the 
anima animus is then differentiated. But the most important part is for each individual to see and find and acknowledge their countersexual self. So now these stages are happening internally, and as you said, they're projected. And does does this happen naturally to everyone? Does everyone go sequential, sequentially through the stages uh, as as we age, as we mature, or do some people get stuck? Well, some people don't want to go. <laughs> they right. want to stop. And this is the repeating and the repeating and the repeating of we see. Uh, oh, well, marriages or, or anything of that sort, you see, that it gets to a certain point. The projection dissolves, so they cut it off with that personal woman or man. And then, uh, but it can't grow. The ego hasn't assimilated. The ego has not incorporated this new image of woman. The ego doesn't want it. It's afraid of it. Yeah. And so it then returns to the old ways. And that's what how we see this kind of uh, life that just doesn't seem to go anywhere. It just keeps repeating and repeating mm-hmm. and doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd like to move ahead to Mary Magdalene because you've done a lot of of research on her. And last year, you gave a series of lectures for the Friends of Young South, a series of Zoom lectures. Uh, there were four of them. And the first one was titled Mary Magdalene and the Da Vinci Code, Revisioning the Divine Feminine. Yeah. Well, it was the uh, Dan Brown book of the Da Vinci Code when it came out and it was it was such a uh, you know such a hit and such a change in what we've been reading uh, yeah but a novel and then a movie was made of it and it was about uh, it, I mean quite quite different from our Christian teachings that this was a book about that really is not known to everyone, but uh, Mary and Jesus were married and they had a child and they went to, I mean, this was after the child was born, after the uh, crucifixion and resurrection. But that was when uh, Mary and Joseph of Arimathea, I think it was, that took her then to Egypt where the child was born and then later on they went to to France um, there's a place on the coast of France that's called uh, 
Maria's Maria's de la Mer, which is um, Mary by the Sea. And there's a beautiful chapel there. They when they went to to France, they told the story that the young girl was a maid, a servant, because she was black. And uh and also to keep the bloodline safe. So then that we see even today in Maria de la Bear, this beautiful chapel, cathedral of uh, St. Cali. They called it Cali, meaning black. And uh, that was it. Now, she hasn't been uh, canonized by the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. but the people there have beautiful statues of her and it's a big celebration every day. So this is part of the Da Vinci Code, this new child and what happened to her and what happened to Mary, actually, too, throughout the, the remaining years. Okay, and I just want to circle back for a minute. You said she was black. What do you mean by that? Her skin was black. Mm-hmm. Because Jesus and Mary Magdalene were... I, I, I don't know why her skin was black, but that was what they called her. They were dark complected. You know, with, yeah, dark complected. Yeah. And and this child was black. And does this tie in at all to the Black Madonna, or no? Well, it certainly has strings there. Yeah, and uh, I think though that it was you know it was it was the people's choice to make her different to stand out mm-hmm. and they wanted her black now whether the child was actually black or I don't know but they called her Callie the statue there uh St. Callie and uh so anyway, it, the story of the Da Vinci Code just goes on to tell the different aspects that they met with, trying to locate this true image, uh, not only of of, of Kelly, but of what Mir Magdalene was and where it was that uh, her secrets might be found, and uh, the search for her secrets, really, and for her, her body, which all over France and I think Northern England and Scotland uh, are burial places, mm-hmm. places in which they have burial places for her, uh, and you see those in different chapels around particularly southern France and northern England and uh, Scotland. So that's the story. And um, of the Da Vinci Code and so we just took up 
some, when we say revisioning Mary Magdalene, we were looking at different stories that we didn't know about her. Yeah, and you bring this up because the book became a bestseller. It was huge. And then the movie uh, became a, a blockbuster. And so why this interest in this alternative version of the life of Jesus that he indeed married. And he was married to Mary Magdalene, who we all thought was a prostitute. And yet there's this (laughs) intense interest. Yeah. And it reminded me of the the big reaction and, and the the intense interest around your book, The Sacred Prostitute. Yes, it is. It's uh, well. I think the the interest was created because it was so out of whack from what we'd been taught all our lives. There, as you're speaking about the uh, sacred prostitute in the Magdalene, there is a well. It, it was published in two hundred two. Two zero zero six, I think, and it's about uh, seeing. It's the the name of the book is the secret teachings of Mary Magdalene, uh, and it, it's um, quite a beautiful book. the The authors of it are Claire Normand and Margaret Bailey. Uh, but they bring in many ideas, new ideas about Mary Magdalene. One of them is that she was a sacred prostitute uh, before she went living in Israel. And she was at the, a sacred prostitute at the Temple of Isis. And they were very educated by the essence and actually, the sacred prostitutes that they were really re- revered in the civilizations that where the goddess temples were. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, so much so that they could be educated, and that also that they could own or inherit land of their families, which other women could not do. So they were really quite chosen. So they were revered at the time and not thought of the way we think of them. Uh, So your, your research into Mary Magdalene, you say her image has been tampered with. And yeah, yeah. And what do you mean by that? The, the image has been tampered with. Well, first of all, that she really was. Uh, um, a miraculous person. Yeah. A wonderful woman. I mean, all of that. And I guess the worst debasement that a woman could achieve would be called a whore. You know, they used to stone him to death. Uh, so it's, 
you know, that's the debasement that we see, that that a woman's sexuality mm-hmm. cannot be accepted for anything other than, you know, to please a man and forget about her. So it has nothing to do with the love and in deep, deep feelings that can be transmitted into the other's life. Actually, that's what the temple of, of the sex prostitution was about, that the love of the goddess could be instilled through the act of lovemaking in the sacred prostitute, could be instilled to, to, to become alive within the man. Uh, so that was that was their beginnings, yeah. and we don't have anything like that today. Right. And what is the result of that? What What's the fallout from us not having that today? Well, I think uh, the same thing is is we find that. Uh, uh, sexuality is not making the album. Sexuality is just getting rid of some impulses. But what, so what is being missing is the whole connection that one has to one another. That kind of spiritual deepness and relatedness and feeling another's feelings as it would be. Knowing where the other person is coming from and understanding that and loving that. Uh, We don't have that. I mean, well, I mean, Certainly, it's there, but in our collective society, that's not being transmitted. One of the other lectures uh, that you gave is titled, Why We Need a Penitent Whore. And in that talk, you you answer that question. And, and I love your answer. What did you say? <laughs> well, I uh, I think, particularly for a woman, she needs to understand consciously where she is a whore. Every woman is. In, the dark side of her shadow element is a, is in part a whore. And she uses her sexuality in order, as we talked before, you know, to gain attention or power or money or, or whatever. Uh, and she, she does. 
Yeah, no, it, it's all over the films and the, yeah, it sure is. the TVs. It's right in our face all the time. And so, but the penitent whore is the one who understands her black shadow side and can, you know, if she confronts it and sees it and not allow it just to act out whenever it jumps out, then she is more conscious, you see, of that. And that, so we need that penitent whore in order to become conscious of what our real whore nature is about and what it does and how it is destructive. She's conscious. Mm -hmm. The fourth talk, the last talk you gave, is titled, Are Psychological Symbols from Science and Theology? And I was really surprised to see you mention the Higgs boson just the particle, mm -hmm. uh, the so-called God particle that was allegedly discovered at CERN uh, several years ago. And you explain how symbolically it relates to Jung's archetype of the self. So how does that tie into this whole topic? Well, yes. How, how is this... Uh, the little... Atom, I think, smaller than the atom. It's a subatomic particle. Yeah, and um, so it is. First of all, it's the very basis of all all matter. It's there in everything that's living out in our universe. And to know that that is also a part of ourselves and how we are therefore connected, all connected to one another and to our nature. We're not separate. We don't load over. We try to, but we don't load over our world, per se. We are a small atom in this universe, each individual, but together we make it up. That sort of thing, I think, was important when I learned about that, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a difficult truth. A, tra a travel of individuation, of coming to know this counter-sexual side. It's a difficult way. Love is difficult. And usually, in some way, results in, in hurt, or depression, or anxiety, or something of that sort, and can, until we understand that yes, this is part of our growth too. This is part of our understanding what love is about. 
So it's all of those things, I think, Laura, that we talked about. But we have to understand our, the, the parts of ourselves that are unconscious and to bring them into consciousness in order that we ourselves become more whole, more fully, fully capable of being who we were designed to be. At the end of the book, you say the missing attributes of the goddess can only be restored to the collective by each one of us in our individual way, enlarging our perception of the feminine. And that is from page 161 in the book, The Sacred Prostitute. We will be giving away a copy of the book this Friday, January 28th on Twitter, Follow me at Jungian Laura and Inner City Books at Inner City Books and look for the tweet pinned to my timeline on Thursday. We give away a book every Friday on Twitter around 3 p.m. Central Time on Friday afternoons. The winner is chosen by random number generator and it is open to addresses worldwide. This is a physical book that we actually send you. Uh, it's sponsored by the publishers and this week it's Inner City Books. So I would like to thank you for your time today and I appreciate uh, you sharing all of this with us, Dr. Qualls Corbett. Well, Laura, I thank you. Uh, I, I thank you and I enjoyed our conversation. I did. Please visit our website, Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. Speaking of Jung is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. And it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device, simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. Links to Amazon's new Echo devices can be found in the show notes. So with very special thanks to Dr. Melissa Werner, to Anna Dudley and CJ Johnson with the Friends of Jung South, and to Inner City Books, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. <laughs>